0: Hello, and welcome to Extra Grimm, where we delve a little deeper into the world of the Brothers Grimm. This episode, we interview Dr. Jamie Tirani, and discuss his research into the origins of fairy tales. So, pop another look on the fire, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hello there, hello.
1: Hi, hi, welcome to Extra Grip. Thanks for having me. In this episode, as uh, Adam has already let you know, you'll be hearing our interview with Dr. Jamie Tirani. Uh He's a professor in the Department of Anthropology at Durham University. He's also a member of the Durham Cultural Evolution Research Centre, and he's a fellow of the Wolfson Research Institute for Health and Wellbeing. And his special interest is in cultural evolution. Now, in 2016, Dr. Turani wrote a research paper with Sarah Grassa de Silva from New University of Lisbon. And their research supposedly uncovered the ancient origins of many folktale narratives. And they concluded that we can accurately trace back many folktales, fairy tales, thousands of years. And like the BBC and The Guardian and many other news outlets uh, picked up on this and published articles on this and I'd already actually come across those many years ago when we started. Had
0: you? Oh, you didn't tell me that. No, I can't remember. But then you stumbled across them again. In what episode was it? Well, it was in
1: our fairly recent episode, Brother Lustig, mm-hmm. uh, where in that episode we also heard a Brother's Grimm story called The Smith and the Devil. Now, Dr. Tarani's paper, which is titled uh, Comparative Phylogenetic Analyses Uncover the Ancient Roots of Indo-European Folk Tales... That paper claims that the Smith and the Devil, the story we read in Brother Lustig, as a story type, it can be traced back 6,000 years. It's the oldest story that they found in their research. Incredible. Now, in the Brother Lustig episode, as you, I'm sure you remember, uh, I did try to explain how they proved that these fairy tales can be traced back thousands of years. Do you remember me floundering and struggling to do that?
0: Yes, I do. And I still was confused. Happy memories. Oh, they were very
1: happy. <laughs> so I tried to explain it in the episode and failed spectacularly. Uh, but fortunately, Dr. Tarani agreed to join us and explain, in his own words, the research that he did. But just to set the scene... Okay, set the scene for me. What the research did, Adam, was it used comparative phylogenetic methods and autolinguistic modeling to analyze the relationships between folktales, population histories and geographical distances in Indo-European-speaking societies. Essentially, what they did is they took methods that are used in evolutionary biology and applied those methods to orally transmitted stories. And by using these stolen biology tools, they followed the thread of these
0: folktale narratives to their roots in ancient society. Very well put, Matt. But if you were after even more detail on that, he does go into more detail on that process. He does because we kind of—that's what we got. That concept,
1: yeah. But, like, how is that possible, and yeah. how can you, in particular, go past the written word? Yeah. Like, if you're trying to trace the origins of these stories, how can you go beyond the invention of writing? Yeah, it seems Which counterintuitive. Is,
0: we had questions. On we this? did. We had a lot of questions <laughs> for him.
1: And I think he comprehensively answers that in the interview. I think like how that's possible. I think so. Did yeah. we get
0: our heads around it? I think we did. I mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the most confident yes I've ever heard. <laughs> but yeah, we can talk more about that after the we'll interview. We talk about that after, absolutely.
1: Yeah. But just to say, the, the claims in uh, the research, Dr. Tarani's research, are quite extraordinary. For example, the research suggests that Jack and the Beanstalk can be traced back to when Eastern and Western Indo-European languages split more than 5,000 years ago. Also, they suggest that Rumpelstiltskin can be dated back 4,000 years. And the oldest story that they found was The Smith and the Devil, which is 6,000 years old from the Pontic Steppe.
0: What is the Pontic Steppe?
1: Not a question we need answering (laughs) tonight. (laughs) So we talked to Dr. Tarani about all of that, about that specific
0: type of research, but other stuff came up as well, didn't it, Adam? Yeah. um, Again, comparisons of... um, this, like fairy tales and the spread of fairy tales to sort of biology came up. We talked about anthropology. We mm-hmm. talked about lots of things that I can't remember now. <laughs> We've
1: only just done the interview <laughs> as well.
0: And I think uh, uh, an extra special part was
1: uh, at the end, he actually told us a story.
0: I was not expecting it, but it was such a treat.
1: We were wrapped. Oh, that was amazing. That was a total
0: treat, yeah. <laughs> so stick around for that. Yeah, that was fantastic. But we started off by asking Dr. Tarani to introduce himself. So, take it away.
1: Thanks again so much for joining us, um, Dr. Tarani. We wondered uh, if, first of all, you could just introduce uh, yourself for the benefit of our listeners
2: yeah, certainly. Uh, so uh, thanks very much for, for, for having me on the on the pod, um, looking forward to our chat. Um, um, so I'm Jamie Tehrani and I'm an anthropologist. Uh, I work at Durham University um, in Durham, obviously.
1: Excellent. Um, so we've invited you on uh, to chat with us today because we recently, um, in our podcast, discussed the story of the Smith and the Devil, which yeah. we found is in the first edition of the Brothers Grimm's Fairy Tales. And this uh, led us uh, onto your 2016 paper on the origins of folktales, which dates that particular narrative, I think about 6,000 years. Mm. Um, And I was trying to understand it and sort of explain it in our podcast. And uh, I read all the press articles. I tried to read the actual paper uh, with little
2: success. Yeah, sorry Um, about that. (laughs) (laughs) That's academic prose for you.
1: (laughs) And the the press articles, they kind of didn't really go into sort of the, the process, the actual detail of how the research was carried out. So essentially, I just wondered if you could sort of talk us through the research, like how it came about, uh, the methodology, you know, exactly what you and your colleague did in the research, that would be great.
2: Yeah, yeah, certainly. So so this research grew out of um, earlier work that I did on um, the evolution of folktales, which um involved doing a case study of two really well-known international tale types. So as I'm sure many of your listeners will already know, an international tale type is essentially a story that has got a recognizably consistent plot and set of characters uh, that we find in different cultural traditions. And um, there's been a lot of interest, really, I mean, since, since international types were first discovered and catalogued. There's been a lot of interest in trying to understand how they originated, where they came from, and whether we can trace the origins and spread of these folk tales that have somehow made their way all around the world in some cases. So I started out by looking at two of those uh, international tale types, which were Little Red Riding Hood and The Wolf and The Kids, which are believed to be related to one another, Uh, and are thought to be related to tales in many other traditions as well. And uh, the way that I approached uh, this question of, you know, where the tale came from and what the relationships, the cross-cultural relationships between different versions of these stories um, were, was to take an evolutionary approach. I was really inspired by the kinds of methods that have been developed by evolutionary biologists to understand the origin and dispersal and diversification of organisms. Now, I can appreciate that probably on the surface, that sounds like quite an odd thing to do. That's quite a big leap. But in many ways, I think that folktales can be thought of as being similar to organisms. I think they are organic in so far as In most cases, folktales don't have a single author. They aren't products of intelligent design of a kind of single author who's, um, you know, come up with a story and published it and got a copyright on it. The beauty of folktales is that nobody owns them. They belong to the community and they've been shaped by generations of storytellers. And in that sense, um, they evolve in a very, I don't even think it's to say it's an analogy with biology i mean i think it is fundamentally the same kind of process that these are stories that get told get retold as they get retold small often small modifications are made um and then in some cases those modifications get selected for in other words they get you know preferred by audiences and those modifications spread and they become incorporated in the into the tradition so you have a kind of process of descent with modification Now, the other way in which I was inspired by what biologists do is um, that folktales, like biological organisms, don't usually have a very good um, historical record. By which I mean, um, by definition, folktales tend to be transmitted primarily through oral tradition rather than being written down. So it means that we often don't actually know very much about their origins, their history. We don't have a physical record. And it's very similar for That's also true of biological species, where okay, we've got the fossil record, but it's incredibly patchy. You know, we just don't have any physical evidence for all these missing links between um, different different organisms. So they need to be reconstructed in some way. Um, now, in evolutionary biology, the way in which the history of life has been reconstructed. Is by using an indirect source of evidence about the past, which is not a physical record, um, but the information about the past is being preserved through the mechanism of inheritance. So the story of our human lineage is written into our genes and, and the genes of our closely related um, primate uh, relatives. And similarly with folk tales, we can see you know that there's this all this diversity in folk tale traditions and we find you know some similarities and differences in international types and different cultures and we can sort of treat those similarities and differences in the same way that biologists use genes to reconstruct the history of life we can do use a similar kind of way treating like these little motifs and stories that vary in different tellings as being like genes that kind of mutate and get transmitted and get inherited and to kind of reconstruct that sort of history of mutation and modification and inheritance over time um, using the same kinds of methods so this is where phylogenetic analysis comes in so phylogenetic analysis is essentially about reconstructing genealogies of transmission in the case of biology you'll use genetic data to do that in the case of folk tales, Will take um, variables in the story or these so-called motifs. Um, so that's where I um, started. That's why I got this sort of idea of you know can we apply these biological uh, methods, this phylogenetic analysis, to study the diversification of Little Red Riding Hood and the Wolf and the Kids. And um, you know, I really just really enjoyed doing that project. It, it kind of you know really um, captured my imagination. It It got me really into folklore, uh, which I realized was just such a fascinating field of study. Before that, I wasn't, uh, you know, I I wouldn't describe myself as a folklorist. I'm very much an anthropologist who uses um, folklore data, and and I'm fortunate enough to, to know some really good folklorists who helped guide me through this. Uh, including Sarah Grassa de Silva, with whom we did this um, project on Indo-European folktales that included uh, your devil mm-hmm. tale. Um, so what we did in that case was, uh, and this is, you know, actually why it's so nice to be invited on this podcast. It's got, you know, it, which is all, you know, the kind of, you know, that Grim reading and and the Brothers Grimm and everything. Because in many ways, this particular project was was directly inspired by the work of the Brothers. Grimm, who um, in the preface of one of the editions of their Household and Children's Tales, uh, discussed the relationship between German folk tales, uh, which they were obviously collecting, and these tales that uh, were being collected elsewhere in in, um, the Slavic world, in um, Britain, in Scandinavia. And even in places like India and Iran, it became sort of clear that the folk tales that Grimm's were collecting weren't unique to Germany, but actually had cousins in um, these other countries and, and cultures. So, um, what they speculated, what Wilhelm Grimm speculated, was that the uh, more culturally related uh, traditions are, the more tales they'll have in common. So, he proposed that the um, German oral traditions are going to be more similar to closely related traditions like Scandinavia and England, for example, than to more um, distantly related cultures like India and and Iran um, and so on. So had this idea that the tales that they were collecting belonged to this great, uh, what, what he called Indo-Germanic, that today we would call Indo-European, this this great Indo-European heritage. So just like the languages that we speak are related to one another, so too are the folktale tradition. And he hypothesized that there was a correlation between linguistic relatedness and cultural relatedness and um folktale tradition. so they're all part in his view of this yeah kind of common inheritance from the indo-european ancestors from what from which all these cultures were descended so that was the hypothesis that he set out to test
1: mm-hmm. and th- yeah that's interesting um... Jacob Grimm, I think, in particular, was a linguist, really, wasn't he? Absolutely,
2: yeah. So you can see how, the, and, and it was at the time that, that people were, you know, becoming fascinated by the relationship of the languages. Mm-hmm. So you can see how, for, for the Grimm's, it would have been a very obvious connection. To make.
1: Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Would you say, to, to kind of um, bring it to the, the biological side of things, the, the modification in the stories, would that be something like, Having the red hood, for example, within Little Red Riding Hood, would that be an example of that?
2: Definitely, um, you get lots of different variations that may range from um, details about the characters' appearances or, or even personalities to more fundamental ones, like you know the the ending of the story. And in fact, that's actually one of the you know, quite common modifications in folk tales: is that um, you get more change at the beginning and the end of a story than in the middle. Um, and particularly the end seems to be a kind of mutational hot as it were. Um, now, I mean, some of your listeners may be querying quite rightly how far you can push this, this analogy. So when I talk about mutation, you know, I keep on using this term, I think it would be totally fair to say, well, isn't this one of the ways in which something like folk tales differ quite a lot from, from organisms? Is in the case of um, biological eating, variation is kind of random. You know, genes, you know, they don't uh, you know, well, not generally anyway, they don't um you take for a particular purpose. There isn't any kind of you know, um conscious um kind of effort effortly or all, all, all the um the organisms itself, to change their genes. Um whereas in the case of Stories, of course, storytellers are very kind of conscious of the stories they're telling. And, and you know, the innovations that they will introduce will often be very deliberate. I mean, there are no doubt going to be cases where things just get accidentally forgotten or misremembered, and that can change a story as well. But many, in many cases, these um what I'm describing as mutations could be more accurately called innovations, they're kind of deliberate. But that doesn't matter as far as um, applying these methods is concerned. All these methods are really interested in is inheritance and novelty and then the retention of some of those novelties in subsequent generations. So it doesn't really matter whether the process that drives variation is like random mutation or something that's kind kind of quite deliberate, because at the end of the day, even if you come up with some innovation in the story, you're not the one that gets to decide whether that gets incorporated into the tradition. You know, there's that kind of process of selection that goes on, uh, which may then lead to a certain innovation really catching on and being passed on to the next generation. Um, and that's what these methods, these phylogenetic methods, uh, are, are designed to... OK,
0: so... so oh, sorry, Adam, go ahead. No, I was, was going to say, that's really interesting, uh, the way you tie it into to biology and genetics like that, because we previously spoke to Jack Zipes, who spoke a lot about uh, sort of folklore and fairy tales as in sort of mimetic terms, which yeah, obviously yeah. Meme, meme came about as a biological term to describe genetics. So that's, that's
2: yeah, I mean, uh, Jack Zipes is, is um, you know, being very influential, wrote a book called By Fairy Tale Stick, which um, I think is uh, brilliant. And Jack Zipes was uh, also, uh, yeah, a, when you know I approached him and and he, he gave me a lot of guidance. Our approaches are you know, there's definitely a, a, a kind of strong kinship.
1: Yeah, he he also talks about Little Red Riding Hood, I think, to us about oh, yes. how it says some there's something in it that's transmitting a, a message. So that's why it spreads so much. That was kind of his take on it, I think.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean absolutely. So that's where, you know, these tales, they they adapt and they are, you know, again, this is you know, where I would I would push that um, you know parallel with the evolutionary biology that when you know organisms disperse and they and they find new ecological niches, they, you know, over generations will adapt to those to those new niches. And, uh, and that, you know, we see that with, with folk tales as well as they spread, they, you know, become localized. Uh, and I think that as an anthropologist, that's actually one of the most fascinating things about folk tales um, is that they that they they have both a kind of universal dimension, but then a cultural specific one as well. So, I mean, the folklore record is a, is a fantastic laboratory looking at human universals and differences and cultural specificities. It is, Tales will spread, but then they become, you know, they adapt. They get adapted to, to you know, a new cultural context. The, the tellers in those communities will find ways to make those tales more compelling to, to their immediate audience.
1: Mm. I, 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 I remember one example. We found a, a book that I think it was from some remote region in northern India. Some like English Victorian vicar had like collected folk tales from this quite isolated group, and they were one story in particular was really similar to a Brothers Grimm story, like very, very similar. And yeah. it kind of, it, it, it beggars belief in a way that you could have such similar tales. I know, I know you're talking about yeah. the like local variants, but at the same yeah. time you do get the kind of fundamentally the same stories found in different places.
2: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And and you know, it, it's a kind of good reminder that globalization isn't something invented in the 20th century, it's been going on for a long time. And and I think is a fantastic example. You know, these tales have been moving around you know whether it's with you know nation dispersals in the ancient world or in prehistoric times or more recently you know from medieval times onwards the populations interacting with one another things like silk road or you know people like to share stories and as we come into contact with one another these stories spread place to place and as you said you know you can go you know somewhere really remote in 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 um you know tibet or whatever and, and find stories that you can recognize and uh yeah so I mean on the one hand I think it speaks to you know th- this um connections that have existed between different cultures over many many uh centuries um and then on the other hand it also speaks to, I think something even more profound and fundamental which is um the human mind is is you know basically works the same way everywhere. And um, you know, the folktales, really successful folktales that manage to spread vast distances and endure over centuries, are obviously speaking to something kind of really fundamental about the human condition that's that's again, you know, as as an anthropologist, that, that makes for fascinating hero. Uh, but not even for anthropologists, I think everyone. Um and um, Great that, you know podcasts like yours uh you know kind of bringing these stories um you know keeping them in in uh, you know public consciousness it's, it's great to bring attention to these you know enduring stories that um that i think yeah, sort of, um ultimately speaks on a much deeper level than the kind of um TV that we see most, and so you know, it's, we need to keep these stories alive.
1: <laughs> we need more sitting around the fire, sharing stories. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think one thing that's interesting is with your paper you kind of uh weighed into the uh the debate as i understand it within the academic world between the ideas that on the one hand some think that fairy tales are a sort of renaissance invention like 16th century yeah. invent invented sort of literary genre uh, and that's where they come from and then the other side think no these are actually ancient fairy tales which is what the brothers Grimm thought as well and you very yes. much put yourself in that camp in that second camp
2: yeah i mean uh, i wasn't um i didn't set out to, to prove that um you know i was um you know agnostic about i mean it it seemed to me that the the idea of these tales or many of these tales having an ancient a more kind of ancient oral origin seemed more um it seemed to me from reading other folklorists that that was a more compelling hypothesis that the evidence seemed to be, you know, more in favour of that view. But I was certainly open-minded about a more recent literary origin for these tales, um, and um, this is where I think you know you run into the problem of a lack of evidence, a lack of physical evidence, because all the uh, oral origins hypothesis, um, of course, we don't have data to prove because the hypothesis itself is premised on the idea that these are tales that have existed that originated in oral tradition and were passed on in oral tradition of course we don't have written records of them the earliest evidence we've got for many of these stories is as you said these kind of early modern uh writers who um who, who some researchers have argued well you know maybe those are the people who just invented tales and they didn't go any further back than that so it's where you really you know run up against this problem of not having the actual physical evidence. there, um, And so you need to use some other to try and get around that. And, um, and, and again, that sort of brings in these inferential methods that the biologists have developed to address that exact same problem in the case of the history of life.
1: So how exactly then does it overcome that problem like what is the actual mechanics of the phylogenetic analysis what does it do is it just sort of modeling based on masses of data
2: yes that's right it's a it's a modeling technique where um and the work that i did with um the little red riding hood and the uh, wolf and the kids has so used phylogenetic techniques to um to reconstruct the mutations in different versions of the stories and to come up with these sort of genealogies these genealogical trees um, that represent the transmission history of that particular tale type. In the case of um, the Indo-European folktale um, traditions, we were looking at a uh, a much broader canvas really, we, because to take that Brothers Grimm hypothesis about the relationship between different oral traditions, what we were interested in finding out was to what extent um, a genealogy of the languages spoken by Indo-European people could explain the distributions of dead tales, And so what we did was we used the uh, catalogue of international folktale types, known as the Arno Thompson-Buther Index, um, and that um, catalogues the, um, yeah, basically the cross-cultural distribution of these international tale types, so things like Little Red Riding Hood and The Wolf and the Kids, but also um, you know, a much wider range of, of different genres. Sure. What we decided to focus on were, were tales of magic, so what we would know, commonly just either as fairy tales. Um, and uh, we looked at whether the distribution of these fairy tales in the Indo-European world um, could be explained by the relationships between languages so you know you take a, a language tree basically and you look at you know where you've got on the branches of the tree you've got very closely related languages do the speakers of those languages also share lots of folktales in common um, or is it the case that uh, what really predicts the sharing of folktale tradition between different cultures is just how far apart they are in space because you know, an alternative to the Brothers Grimm hypothesis, uh, that these tales have been inherited and passed down from generation to generation, going back to kind of ancestral populations. Um, the alternative hypothesis is that, are well, these stories just spread, um, you know, within a community, across a community, eventually, you know, spreading from one kind of ethnic group or country to another, and that could have all happened much more recently. And in that kind of scenario, sharing of folk, how similar folktale traditions are to one another is going to be simply um, predicted by how close they are geographically to one another. So, you know, the sort of, you know, diffusion across space rather than the inheritance through time. So we were basically comparing, you know, time versus space right? <laughs> and uh, what can best explain the um, the sharing of these folktale traditions. So it's, in order to model time, we used a, a language, The Indo-European language tree. So the Indo-European language tree uh, represents the family relationships between a vast number of languages spoken in Europe, um, uh, in Western Europe, in Eastern Europe, in um, and much of Western Asia as well, places like India and Pakistan and um, Iran, and you know there are many of these different um, populations that speak what is an Indo-European language, that, and all these languages believe to share a common root. But uh, some languages are more closely related to, to one another than they are to others. So um, we tend to categorise them according to these subfamilies. So, uh, for example, the Romance family is a branch of the Indo-European language tree. That includes languages like Italian and Spanish, French. You've got the Germanic branch that includes Danish and German and Dutch and English. You've got um the Indo-Iranian branch that, that um includes Urdu and Hindi and Farsi and languages like that. So um so basically we take the branches of the tree as a kind of um a map of common history for these. Languages for these, these cultures. Um, and um, you can basically take the distances that separate these cultures through time as the distances between them on this tree, language tree, and compare that to the distance between them in space, the kind of geographical differences. And, and so we basically modeled then um, whether these folk tales uh, could be better explained by, by time or by space. And we found that for a lot of them, space is the a better account, um, but obviously the headline we're having finding was that there's a significant number of tales that um, do fit the Brothers Grimm hypothesis, that um, that they seem to have been inherited from common ancestral populations by their descendants. Um, so we came up with about 100 tales, but, uh, which is you know, a pretty big number. We're talking about these distances that I'm talking about, these temporal distances, distances over time, we're talking about thousands of years, right? So those stories that have really survived a long, long time, and a group of those go as far back as the ancestors of major subfamilies like Romance and Germanic and and, and so on. And there are a few. who go even further back. Than that and one in particular which is the one that we've already mentioned that we were able to trace back to the common ancestor of all surviving indo-european languages um, and that was um yeah the famous smith and the devil
1: is that just because it exists in practically all of the the, the branches
2: uh, no not in all of them so um it has gone um if you like, missing or it's been lost in some traditions, particularly in uh, Indo-Iranian traditions. Um, but it's in it's it has survived in enough branches of the tree for us to take it that far back. And of course, uh, I mean, in in a way, for this particular method, if you had a story that was um, found in all the populations you know, and all the European populations, we wouldn't actually be able to separate the effects of geography or of um, a, of language relationships because you just have to say well it, it fits both of them i mean it's just mm-hmm. you know this is just the album you find everywhere
1: and is that like so the, the difference there between the spatial and the temporal is like i know for example that in like the hungarian language is more closely related to finnish than it is to like romanian or other surrounding countries is that the idea yeah. that like one tribe or group would move somewhere else and then they would develop there so yeah so your language uh, family doesn't match necessarily where you are in the world. Yeah,
2: exactly. Exactly. So a lot of the time, um, it's actually very difficult to separate the two mm, effects yeah. of time and space, because say if we had a story that we only found in in Spanish and in Portuguese tradition, um, now those are very closely related languages, um, Spanish and Portuguese, but obviously they're also each other's nearest neighbors. Mm. So if you only find a story present in those two Traditions, you actually can't tell. There is no kind of principled way to be able to discriminate between a story having spread from one population to an, to another, and that could have happened fairly recently, uh, or this is a story that was existed in the common ancestor of these Iberian languages that that, that maybe goes back, you know, quite a long way so yeah so in some cases you just can't tell the difference but with the stories that have quite wide distributions mm-hmm. yeah it's it's better because you know just as in that case Hungarian that, that you gave you know hungary's nearest neighbors aren't uh, geographic neighbors aren't closest linguistic relatives of uh Hungarian. so mm-hmm. yeah so it's, it's where you get those differences mm-hmm. and you're able to start with these, uh,
1: and with little red riding hood is Do you off the top of your head remember which where it pops up around the world and which sort of branches it's on?
2: Yeah. So Little Red Riding Hood would be an example of a story that has kind of caught on and spread between neighbouring cultures. But actually it's spread over massive distances because we find... um, a really fascinating tradition of Little Red Riding Hood stories in, in Eastern Asia. So there's a, you know, you know so it's gone really far from, you know, wherever it originated. And there are different theories about whether it actually came from the East and spread to the West or, or um, originated in the West and spread to the East. And on the basis of my analysis, it looks more probable that the story originated in the West and spread and spread to the East. Um, so, um, yeah, so we can, even where we have stories that are spreading, if you like, horizontally, rather than being inherited vertically, so stories that are spreading between neighbouring kind of cultures, um, we can still use these methods to reconstruct that process of fusion, um, which, again, I think, um, you know, can be really, you know, interesting in folklore as a way to kind of understand how stories spread, not just, you know, the stories that have been inherited from an ancestral populations, because we know that there are different ways that, that um, you know, stories have been transmitted, you know, whether it's you know, we've learned them from our parents, you know, sort of bedtime stories, or you've, you know, heard a good story from a neighbour that you then told at a dinner party or, or passed on in some other context, you know, so we know that people tell stories in a whole variety of different um, contexts and, and learn them from a variety of different sources. And when we look at this kind of, you know, big picture, exactly the same thing stories that of have, have spread over you know vast distances of space and some stories that have been inherited over you know thousands and thousands of years um which really in both cases i think challenges some of the prevailing assumptions that people have about oral traditions you know that that oral traditions are very fragile That you know people aren't very good at, at kind of you know so we think of it Traditions as being a bit like you know the game Chinese whispers or, or telephone writ large. Mm. Um, so, um, I don't know if you've ever heard this apocryphal um, tale that in the First World War um, commands you know were kind of transmitted through the trenches through these sort of radio stations, and there was a command that was sent out uh, you know to, to the troop that said something like, um, send for reinforcements, we're going to advance. And as this message was relayed from one radio to another, um, you know, because it had to be then, you know, repeated by, you know, the person landing that station and it would, you know, kind of go down the line. By the by the time it got to the other end of the of the trenches, it had become um Say um, two and three pence. We're going to a dance. <laughs> like that, you know, that God be lost. and I think we often think that that's how all traditions work. You know, that but it's this kind of yeah, like a like a Chinese whispers game. That these stories can't last very long. They're not going to spread very far. They're not going to kind of last over centuries without the support of written texts. So this goes back to you know the debate that we were talking about earlier between scholars. You know, as to whether these are you know, fairy tales and folk tales or oral traditions, or whether they're literary inventions. You know, I think our kind of um, intuition about oral traditions—they're very fragile—is um, actually wrong, and that that um, in fact oral traditions can be incredibly stable, that they can spread over vast and and endure over centuries. And I think a big piece of the evidence for that is that. There are a lot of folktales that are shared between cultures that actually weren't in the Grimm collection or you know weren't written down by early modern writers, yet we still see these these similarities. Um yeah, I think it's fascinating.
1: It's fascinating.
0: Wow. That's so, it's a lot to take in. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, I know. I just, I just <laughs> sat, here, <laughs> sat here taking it all in. When the when your paper was published, did you received much sort of pushback from other academics in the field. I think there was one person quoted in some of the articles, uh, doubting it about something to do with um, the word Smith and and metallurgy. And yeah, yeah, that's right.
2: So um, yeah, so I think that particular criticism was was, um, you know, probably uh, inaccurate, and I think that other linguists would yeah, we we definitely contest that, but I think you know on a kind of broader level, was there pushback? Um, yes, absolutely. So there are some um, folklorists and fairy tale researchers like Jack Zeitz, who we who, who we mentioned earlier, who uh, are very supportive, and you know many who are you know interested in you know taking a different perspective, using new approaches, um, and then there are others who you know I think you know, probably have a healthy scepticism, you know, that, that theirs is a field that's been been around for a, a long time, That you know, they've accumulated, obviously, a lot of knowledge about these traditions and, and have a lot of wisdom about, you know, ways to to study them and, um, you know, sort of see, you know, some, some guy coming in with some fancy stats and, um, you know, I think it's very natural and um and healthy to be to be skeptical about that and i've engaged i've really enjoyed engaging with those people as much as people who've been um supportive because you know i think that you know that, that hopefully will make me a better scholar as well and and as i said you know at the start really. I, mean, I mean i'm i'm an anthropologist i'm not a vocalist so mm-hmm. From that point of view, I mean, I have to be, you know, humble about what you know. These these you know, these people know a lot more about folklore than I do. So, mm. they're, they're those kinds of criticisms mm-hmm. are been learning for me, I think. Hmm.
1: I f- I feel like we could just keep talking to you forever, I know. But, um... Fa- I feel,
0: yeah, fascinated by the process. It's quite sort of scientific. I mean, was there was there like a in my very simplistic mind was there like a sort of eureka moment where you've run a load of data and it spits out a nice hierarchical tree that maps onto the <laughs> yeah yeah was there a moment like that or is it does it not really work like that oh definitely
2: i mean get, getting the um you know when when you get the sort of you know initial results through um that that feels great because that's the easy part i mean that's the thing the analysis which um you know i know that you um had a guy reading the paper and and you know, I wouldn't blame you at all if by the time you got to the method section you just kind of like fell asleep or just switched <laughs> off because that's where it gets like, you know, kind of um, you know, really, yeah, probably quite dull from the outside. But, um, you know, but when you're doing that and you get the, you know, that's, you know, I, the analysis part is the hard part. I don't think it's about sort of, you know, all the the background research, getting the, da- the data is like so important and um, doing the analysis, getting the results. And um, that's fairly straightforward. It's then the interpretation that, you know, gets, But that's the most exciting part of
0: Sure, mm. yeah.
1: Well, I, I suppose we've got one question left. The the question that we ask uh, all the guests we have on the podcast, Adam, do you want to do the honours?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's quite a simple one, but um, what's your favourite fairy tale?
2: Oh, wow, yeah. Okay, so I do have an answer for this one. Actually. Excellent. Um, so, I mean, I guess it's not a very conventional... Of, but it is certainly a folk tale. Um, it's not one that I've studied directly either, but it's one that I just really, yeah, it's just something that I really love. And it's um, it's it's um, often referred to as the king and the bishop. And in fact, you know, I like this tale so much. Let me just share it. Oh, wow. So I don't know how well you can see this on screen and obviously it won't come through on the podcast at all, but this is actually a painting that my my daughter made for me, uh, she's 12 years old and she did this painting while she had um, uh, coronavirus, she was um, she was in her bedroom, kind of, you know, isolating in there. And uh, while she was in there, she doing all kinds of paintings and things. And for Christmas, she gave me this painting of a scene from this folktale, the king and um, the bishop That's in so the cool. abbot. That's and so the story, um, for those who, who aren't familiar with it, um, is that a um there's a, a powerful king who um is in conflict with the the church and he summons the um the archbishop to uh to come see him and he tells the archbishop that he's going to confiscate all his lands and all his wealth and throw him into the dungeon, unless he can answer three questions. The first Question is how long would it take to travel around the earth? And the bishop himself, uh, oh, God, a long time. I don't, know, I don't know the answer. What's the second question? And the second question is how much am I worth? And again, the bishop has no idea what's the royal treasury. And then the king says, and the third question is, what am I thinking? And the bishop thinks, you know, how am I supposed to be able to answer these questions? He says, can I have a bit of time to think about? Um, and the king says, okay, you can have until tomorrow and then you need to give me your answer. So the bishop wanders out feeling completely disconsolate, keeps walking and walking and suddenly finds himself that he's actually walked so far, he's now just in fields and out in the countryside, left the city. He bumps into a shepherd, and the shepherd says, to him bishop you know you look so miserable what's wrong so he tells the shepherd the story of you know what's happened to him how the king is going to take all his land and money and throw him in the dungeon unless he can answer these three questions and the shepherd says to him don't worry i've got this okay i will go tomorrow back to the court um and um give me your robe and i will give the king the answers um and you'll be able to keep it and the bishop thinks god this. Nuts, but you know, you know, what have I got to lose? So he gives the shepherd his robe um, and his all priestly garb, and the shepherd goes off, has a good night's sleep, and turns up at court the next day, dressed up as the bishop, looks magnificent, walks right up to the king, and the king says, So, have you got the answers to my questions? And the bishop, inverted commas, um, says, Your Majesty, I I do. He says, Okay, how long does it take to travel around the Earth? And you know, the says to him, it takes um, a full day because you know the, how long it takes the sun to travel around the Earth. You know, so you know, if you were the sun, it would take a full day. And the king thought, oh, Well, you know, I guess I'll give you that. One. <laughs> what about um, what about my next question? How much am I worth? And the shepherd very confidently says, you're worth 29 pieces of silver. 29 pieces of silver? Where did you come up with that? He says, well, our Lord Jesus was sold 30 pieces of silver, and you are almost as, as valuable as our Lord Jesus. So probably 29 would be my guess. And the king, just uh, he laughs and says, okay, you know, well, obviously, I've just got to let you have that one, because, <laughs> you know, that was clever and, and funny. So, okay, what about my third one? you'll never get this one. so what am i thinking the shepherd said you're thinking that i'm the bishop but and he disclosed i'm actually a shepherd <laughs> 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 and so the king has to uh, reward this shepherd and he you know makes him his prime minister and gives him lots of wealth because he's so clever and wise and the bishop gets all wealth, and everyone is happy ever after
1: oh that's, that's brilliant fantastic. that's absolutely
2: brilliant <laughs> oh
1: wow fantastic thank you so much um, great for, okay guys uh, yeah your time. it's been a
2: pleasure always always a pleasure to talk folk tales so um, yeah I hope everything goes well and yeah I'll um, look forward to listening to future episodes
0: That was our uh, that was our chat with um, Jamie with Doctor Tyrani and a fantastic little uh, little story at the end there. That was
1: such a treat.
0: Absolutely, sounded like a joke, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. Like a long joke.
1: <laughs> the you bishop know. went to the king. Yeah.
0: yeah. And so he's talking to this shepherd, and, and shepherd's said, like, "I've got this covered," and it's got the clever little like uh, sort of wordplay ways of answering the questions. That was great. Yeah, I absolutely. really enjoyed that.
1: That was an absolute uh, delight. Uh, some very interesting stuff in there. I think we we got our head around the sort of central concept. I suppose the main thing we wanted to know was how is it possible to... Yeah. Like, how exactly does the phylogenetic analysis work?
0: Yeah. Um, how, how does it work? How can you trace the history of something back to before uh, recorded history or the written words or whatever... And as soon as he said, uh, we use the same techniques that evolutionary biologists use to sort of trace the origin of life. (laughs) But I was like, that penny dropped for me. I was like, oh yeah, obviously. Because you don't have a written
1: word for like... Going back uh, millions of years. Like biological evolution. Exactly. So
0: therefore, of course it's possible. And the actual process itself was interesting. I think I understand it. Yeah. But do I? The penny dropped for me there, I think, when he was... Uh,
1: describing it as the sort of difference between like temporal and spatial so, and that also uh, cuts across the the sort of doubt in my mind which was like how do you know that just yeah okay maybe you can trace these uh, like different uh, languages have the same story but maybe someone just came a sailor and told it one day in a port and then it spread I think the point there was that so you have the spatial, which is to like geographical spread. So yeah. like countries that neighbor each other or cultures that neighbor each other. But then accounting for time is uh, the evolution of language. Yeah. So that tree goes back in time. So it's quite hard to explain, but I, I can see it like how if you trace it back, you know, two different splits within a branch and you can see that there are higher instances of a certain story type within one branch or whatever, like you can trace that back through time.
0: It makes sense to me. It's quite hard to explain. No, no, exactly. Yeah. When you, if you look at um, with evolutionary biology, like the genetics of various species and you compare that data, you can see that it arranges itself Mm -hmm. into some sort of hierarchical tree. And it's that same thing. And so mm-hmm. you sort of extrapolate that backwards and you end up with the bigger branch and then the bigger branch and then yeah. the base
1: of the tree. And then, as you said, you have the Eureka moment where you, uh, yeah. the computer's done all the calculation. <laughs> yeah.
0: You hit print. Yeah. It prints out a tree <laughs> and you overlay it on the yeah. language tree and you go, Eureka, it fits, it Just matches. Just throw open the window. Yeah. Like, we did it. Throw your papers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that, that penny
1: drop for me there, that clicked yeah. for me, and that does make sense. And I wondered to what extent um, he thought that, like, this is definitive proof or if he just thought it was a, for a big contribution to the body of evidence mm. that these are old stories. He seemed quite open-minded in that you can discount certain things, uh, as he said, like Spain and Portugal are next to each other, so you yeah. can't really tell there.
0: What's what's temporal but, um, what's spatial. Yeah. But, I mean, it was interesting that the fact that, obviously, the the, the headline that all the articles seemed to pick up on was this story that was 6,000 years old. But he was actually saying a lot of his findings related to stories that spread spatially and not temporarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I don't think I'd picked up on from the articles.
1: No, I hadn't either. No. Yeah. So that was interesting. Yeah, I feel like there was this I just feel like we could have just talked for, uh, yeah. for ages, like, just learned more and more and more. It's yeah. such fascinating uh, research topic. And I loved how he kind of brought up that thing for me which is one of the biggest ironies of the Grimm's project which is that ostensibly the Grimm's were trying to collect the German stories to sort of show yeah to sort of shore up the like German national spirit but what they found actually was that these stories are found everywhere yeah and that's the ultimate
0: irony in a way of their collection so the proved the universality of of the fairy tales. exactly. Which Wilhelm said, and then that was a view that was been had been disregarded for a long time and now has essentially been, Hmm. I guess, proven in a certain way with this uh, particular Hmm. research paper. So it's interesting.
1: Yeah, and I like how uh, Jamie was saying that the Brothers Grimm kind of started, kick-started his whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's sort of... it's emboldened us as well, Adam, because you know, he was, he was uh, clapping us on the back
0: for continuing this... Uh, Absolutely. ...spreading these stories. Look, we are doing a cultural service, aren't we, by sitting by the fire, gathering everyone round, and uh, you just telling us all a wonderful story. Heroes. I mean, you said it. Yeah. So, somebody said it. Somebody said Somebody Who said called us that? heroes. Who said that? Who said that? <laughs> heroes. Uh, well, heroes we are then.
1: Wow absolutely brilliant that was uh, absolutely fascinating and uh, yeah just would like to extend our thanks again to uh, Dr. Tarani for um, giving us his time
0: yeah absolutely
1: um, which once again went way over time this keeps happening in the interviews I, I say <laughs> just chat with us for a little bit it won't be very long and, <laughs> and we <laughs> end like, up chatting just for one other thing
0: ages yeah. but there's always so much to talk about and uh, yeah it was a very interesting chat so thank you very much wow well This brings us to the end of the podcast, Matt. It does, Adam. What have we got coming up next? I believe, if my calculations are correct, I'll be seeing you next for the Brothers Grimm story, Frau Trude. Oh, Frau Trude. Frau Trude. Let me just run the numbers on that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's correct. Frau Trude. Yeah, your calculations check out. Thanks, man. I'm in a scientific data analysis kind of frame of mind after our chat.
1: Just to say I think Frau Tree is gonna take us in some quite interesting directions as yeah. well. Somewhere okay. a
0: little new for us. Oh it's just gonna be fun. I'll see you then. Yeah, keep it grim. Keep it grim. Bye. Bye. If you'd like to support the podcast, please head over to patreon.com slash grimreading to find out how and also see the range of benefits available as a thank you from us. You can of course email us at podcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at grim Reading Pod, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook at GrimReading You can find us on Podbean podbean.com slash GrimReading and we also have a website GrimReading.wordpress.com Keep it Grim